I'm so grateful for them doing that. It, it adds so much to the worship service when, when the choir is able to sing like that. And, and I appreciate them on their own meeting on Sunday afternoons and, and practicing. Um, tell you something interesting. Uh, is when you think about spiritual gifts, and now see, there's, you, come on Wednesday nights, you know this. There's a difference between, of course, I'm already chasing a rabbit. But we are going to be in 1 Timothy. So go ahead and take your Bibles and go to 1 Timothy. But I was thinking when Robbie was reading about the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, um, how true this is. By the way, we find there's nine, there's nine flavors, one fruit. The fruit, singular, of the Spirit is. It's one fruit. So it's the Holy Spirit and, and it manifests, it lists nine, nine flavors of fruit. So every one of us have those, but there's nine flavors of the one fruit of the Spirit, so to speak. But also, if you read Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, there's about nine separate uh, gifts of the Spirit. And so the study that we're doing on Wednesday nights, we're covering nine, okay? And that's why I mentioned that, that the two that we're going to try to deal with Wednesday, this Wednesday is exhortation and shepherding. And, and some of us have those gifts that we have a special dose of God's grace. That's what the Bible says. And those are our particular gifts. But every believer, that's, that's believer that's been saved, born again, transformed by the grace of Christ, really, all of us are exhorters. Just to let you know, that word exhortation is the same word used in the New Testament that Jesus introduced the work of the Spirit when he called the Spirit uh, uh, the Helper, it's the same word for exhortation. And what it means is that we come alongside to encourage. And really, all of us as believers, if you think about it, we all possess the Spirit. We all have the fruit of the Spirit. And so when we get around each other, in, in many ways, we're all exhorters. And that's one reason why the church needs to gather together, right? Right? Because when we gather together, we exhort one another. It's a blessing. We're a spiritual blessing to one another. Near where you're seated, there's, there's uh, pew pockets that have these envelopes in it. I want everybody to take an envelope, okay? Somewhere. I know y'all don't have any. Sorry about that. But here, I got some for you. If you want to come, it's okay. Here. By the way, just to let you know, I'm, I'm not going to preach off the offering envelope, but I do want to show you something. Uh, the, the envelopes, most of the ones in the pews are older. Uh, there's a few in the middle that we put some new ones. They look the same, except the new ones have a place where you can put your check number. And I'm not telling you all that. It's just information. They look the same. Uh, the, so the old ones, many, many in the pew pockets are the old ones. Some are the new ones. I'm holding a new one, but I want you to see something at the top. Years and years ago, we uh, kind of adopted this verse in, in our stewardship focus, and it's been on our offering envelopes probably for 15 years. And I found this verse years ago when I preached through the book of 2 Corinthians. And so the top verse, and by the way, just to let you know, the bottom theme, the little statements at the bottom out of Ephesians 4, if you have a new one, it's different from what's on the old ones, but that doesn't matter. I love this verse. So look, before I read this verse, let me give you a little, a little illustration. 
And of course, I know this is a little bit about stewardship before I read 1 Timothy chapter 1. But I want you to think about something. In, in uh, one of the most popular uh, events in the New Testament is when, when Jesus encountered uh, Zacchaeus. Right? We could sing, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. So we know Zacchaeus. And what kind of tree did he climb up in? Sycamore tree. You know it. So you know that. So for the Lord he wanted to see and as the Savior passed that way. Do you remember the events when Jesus saw Zacchaeus? Uh, he said, come down. And the, I know the song. I want to sing the song. Because I'm going to your house to stay. And so he goes. But I don't know if you remember, and I know you do, the, out of, uh, it's in uh, Luke 19. Zacchaeus immediately makes a confession. He, he st- it says, it's like verse 8, uh, Luke 19, 8. It says, Zacchaeus stands. So he's making a public confession for more than just Jesus to hear. And basically, Zacchaeus conf- says publicly that, that half, my, half my wealth I will give to the poor. Because as a, as a tax collector, one of the wealthier, a Jewish person collecting taxes for the Roman Empire, I mean, people didn't like him for doing that. So he was, some of the wealthier people that were Jews would be tax collectors. He says, half of it I'll give to the poor. And then he says, and if I've defrauded, and really, a lot of the income that he made came from him overcharging people. He had the power to defraud. That's how he made a lot of his profits, his own income. He would collect some more than he should, send the rest to Rome and keep the rest. He says, if I've defrauded anybody, I will pay back fourfold. Now, what's interesting, I want you to think how significant this is because as a devout Jew, he knew the law. And the law requires in Leviticus 6, that if you defraud somebody, when you, have, you're, you pay them back what you've defrauded them, plus a 20% uh, sin tax, if you want to call it that. They had to pay an extra 20%, so you paid what you defrauded plus 20%. Well, that's the law. But the confession that Zacchaeus made publicly, he confessed that he would pay back 300%. So he would pay back, let's take $100. He would take, he'd pay back the $100 he defrauded plus three more $100 bills. And that's a public confession. Do you know what Jesus said? It's interesting what Jesus said. He says, today, talking about Zacchaeus, Salvation has come to this house. Do you see what Jesus will say? Saved people look at material wealth far different than lost people. Was that not true for Zacchaeus? It was it not was it true? For okay. Then it should be true for you. It changed Zacchaeus' view of money and wealth. And salvation changes 
our view of money and wealth. I love this Bible verse that's on your envelope. I will most gladly spend... Now, this is Paul writing the book of 2 Corinthians. And by the time he wrote the book of 2 Corinthians, he had already... He was on his third missionary journey, okay? So he had already traveled 10,000 miles on camels and donkeys and boats preaching the gospel and uh, gave his whole life for the gospel. And he says this, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Folks, I want you to think how profound that is. Really, that's what he's going to ask Timothy to do as a pastor at, at Ephesus, to lose his life for the sake of the gospel. But Paul says, I will most gladly spend, that's exactly what you think it is, money, and be spent, talking about wearing himself out, for the souls of men and women. Folks, you could not have a better theme verse for why we want to contribute to the work of the church whether we do it financially and we do it physically as servants, it's for the souls of men. And folks, that not only includes helping people come to know Christ as Savior, but it's part of our body, the body dynamic, where you come and as part of the body, you help exhort the body to grow. That's what the Bible says. So with your Bibles open to 1 Timothy chapter 1, I want to finish reading uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, I promised you we would get into chapter 2 today, but I told you a story. So I want to finish chapter 1. I, I finished a lot. Isn't that an interesting vert to think about that? What Zacchaeus did, this confession. And so uh, one of the things our seminary professors used to tell us, and, and it, it's true, but when you're a young preacher and you hear this from a Bible professor, it's really profound. He said, the, the check, of course, back then it would be the checkbook. <laughs> wrote, can you remember writing checks for everything? A dollar ninety-nine, three, you know, before debit cards. But now it would be your debit card. But he said you can tell the spiritual condition of somebody by just looking at their checkbook, and there there is a lot of truth to that. Well, the Apostle Paul has left. Oh, let me tell you something else I read about this week. That's kind of on this subject matter, folks. Uh, I was reading this week. And it may be a little different today in the sense of being 2024 than it was in 2022 when I read when this statistic was up to date. But today, in general, okay, you know, we're Southern Baptist and we're part of the Southern Baptist Convention. When we vote on our budget, parts of our money go to the cooperative program. Okay? But today, in Southern Baptist life, 70% of Southern Baptists will not be in church today. And next Sunday, 70% of Southern Baptists will not be in church today. And then the next Sunday, and folks, if folks aren't coming to the body, I can tell you for sure what they're, they're not giving, right? They're not giving to the body. They may, not, and they may be giving online like we have people to give online, but they're not giving of themselves to the body. It, it's, it's a terrible state that the church is in. Some of the stuff I've been reading, and you know this to be true, we use it as an excuse is that, you know, they'll say post-COVID, COVID did this, COVID. And there's part of that that is really true, but it's also just excuse. But the struggles we have today are really similar to the struggles that, that Timothy was going to have pastoring the church at Ephesus, what, which was the largest church, really, I think, was the largest church in the world uh, 
because Paul had spent so much time there. So I'm picking up in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want to finish reading verse chapter 1, and, and I'm going to pick up at verse... Uh, I'm going to read this little statement, this doctrinal statement uh, in verse 15 and read down through the end of the, end of the chapter. It says, uh, the saying is, is trustworthy. If you'll remember, uh, I mentioned that this phrase, this is a trustworthy say, saying and worthy of all acceptance. That phrase, and I hate to be redundant, but appears only in the pastoral epistles. So there's five times that this phrase appears, and all five times it's in the pastoral epistles. Okay, so, that, so what we know is so it, a pastor of a church, which Titus was pastoring on the island of Crete, the book of Titus. Timothy's pastoring in Ephesus, and so Paul repeats this five times, but only in, to those two preachers. So we conclude, or theologians conclude, that obviously this was part of a, maybe a, a New Testament, early first century confession, or it was maybe a hymn, parts of a hymn they would sing, or maybe it was a catechism that, uh, you know, catechism is not a bad word, it's in the Bible, maybe it was a catechism that the church would do. I, I'm not sure, but, but it's significant that they, this is the first of the five and so Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So he's talking about without reservations, we believe this. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We believe that, don't we? You know, you think about, honestly, now some of you got saved being raised in a Christian home and Praise the Lord. That's the, that's the greatest way to do it. You raise children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and then God saves them. My home wasn't like that. And, and so when I think about coming to know Christ as Savior, it, you know, when I, and that's been a long time, so, so, and my memory fails me a lot, but when I think back when I was unsaved and people were trying to get me to come to church, uh, they, they were concerned about me because I was going to die and go to hell. Right? Right? And so they may not have shared. A couple of them did share some of the gospel message with me. But their, their goal was to get me to come to church and hear the gospel. Hear the word of God. And they believed enough that they trusted that God's word would do its work. And of course it did. And so every time I think back to when I got saved... I, it is a, it's a sovereign thing that God did because I was so separated from that. You know, I was so, living such a way that was so sick and, and, and just sinful. And, and then all of a sudden, God's Word began to whittle on my soul and it would not go away. And, and so we think, and so we should, so here's my point. If God saved me, He, he can save anybody, Right? If God saved you. So we need to be soul conscious. And so Paul says, here's one of our confessions, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And of course, Paul feels like you and I feel. I don't know your mind. I don't know your heart. But I know my mind and I know my heart. And I detest myself. And you probably detest yourself. So Paul says about himself, of whom I am the foremost. So Paul considered himself the foremost sinner. 
and let me say something else about that. Um, Paul had been saved for 20 years when he wrote that. And, and here's, here's what you'll find when you read. The older that Paul got in the Lord, the, the longer he walked with the Lord, the less he thought of himself. Isn't that interesting? So even, and, and I think about, we're going to ordain a deacon in a couple of weeks, and we're, you know, our new deacons are coming on, and they're supposed to be servants, and, 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 and they are. But the longer you mature in your faith, it's, it doesn't make you, or it's not supposed to make you arrogant and proud. It's humbling. Because it is biblically correct that the more you understand about the Word of God and God's plan and the Lordship of Christ, the worse you feel about yourself. And that's true of the Apostle Paul. He felt he was the greatest sinner on earth, just as you and I probably feel as if we're the greatest sinner. He says, but I received mercy. I don't know if you pay close attention to God's Word. Sometimes we read it and we read it just to read it, but we don't pay attention to what we're reading. So here's, we need to pay attention to this. But I received mercy. By the way, the word mercy, you don't, anyone in the language, was passive, which means that it was undeserving. That word, the language is that way, and it's, it's the beauty of Greek is, is all these rules of grammar, and, and we know that mercy is passive, which means that he, had, he didn't deserve it. He had nothing to do with it. And so God's mercy intervened. And by the way, I want you to know that today, if you're hearing without Christ, it's about God's mercy and grace. It is about you being a sinner. But greater than that is God's mercy and grace. The Bible says that Jesus is full of mercy and grace. Aren't you glad? He is full of mercy and grace. So if you're here today and you've never, you've never believed in Christ unto salvation... There's mercy and grace for you. It's through the gospel of Christ. And we're glad you're here to hear it. He says, but I received mercy. Look, what says, for this reason. He's going to tell us one of the reasons why God saved him. Are you looking at your Bibles? That in me, as the foremost, and, and I'm assuming he's referring to being a foremost sinner, Okay. Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Now, I'm not going to spend forever on this verse, but I want you to pay close attention to what Paul said. See, what Paul did what Christ did in the heart of the Apostle Paul was not a bizarre thing. It's not the exception, is it? He says, is an example of all who will believe in Him in the future. So here's my point. The transformation that took place in the Apostle Paul now, we don't live in the first century and none of us have been persecutors of the early church. But all of us were dead in sin and, been, and if you're here today and saved, you've been made alive in Christ. The transformation in the Apostle Paul is not the exception. Guess what Paul's saying? It's the rule. 
the word example. This billboard. This advertisement of what salvation does. That as wicked as you might be, when you're saved, you're transformed by the grace of God. Let's keep reading. He says, I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. And then he gives this benediction. It almost sounds like, and we have used this, a lot of churches use this often, to the, to the, king, of, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. However, that doesn't mean I'm through preaching. Okay. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Holding faith and a good conscience. By the way, that's one of the attributes of a deacon. And we read that a couple Sundays ago. One of the qualifications is you hold the faith with a good conscience. Which you're not a wavering. You're solid. And so you have a good conscience. You're not always violating your spiritual conscience. Just an interesting statement there. Holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, this faith and maintaining purity of doctrine, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Paul's language is so interesting, isn't it? Obviously, you know why he'd use the word shipwreck, right? Because he'd been shipwrecked a couple of times in his travels. Um, among whom, and he mentions two, by the way, he mentions Hymenaeus again. Among whom are... He's just telling us people that they violated the spiritual conscience. They, they're not believing the Bibles. Not, because I want to read this and see the significance of how important the church is in God's Word and the gathered body is and the authority, the spiritual authority that God gives to the church. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom... I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. What in the world? Does that mean that Paul condemned them to hell? You know it can't mean that, can it? Because salvation is in Christ Jesus alone, right? By faith. He can't change the status, and that's not what he's saying. He doesn't change. He, as an apostle, doesn't have the authority to, to change the status of somebody's salvation. But what I can tell you that the Bible's telling us here is that these two men who were teaching false doctrine and it upset the faith of many, they disciplined. And, and obviously they had been set out of this, the body of the church. Uh, one of the things church discipline does sometimes is you, you dis, disfellowship people. And that's what obviously Paul had done to these two guys. And he does it not just to punish them, but to bring them to repentance. And he says, I, and again, it's a spiritual thing. I, I can't see it, 
You can't write down the five things that might happen and when it's going to happen. But you know that when a church disciplines somebody and, and, and the church publicly speaks against somebody and, and, and symbolically they are given over because the protection of the church is no longer with them. This is part of the spiritual part. I mean, it's not like you have to write it down, but when somebody is disciplined and, and disfe- disfellowshipped, the beauty and the protection of exhortation, of sharing spiritual gifts, whatever it would be, they no longer have that. So they're outside the protection of the body, the supernatural body of Christ. And so Paul's saying, so I've given them over to Satan that they would learn. So it's not going to be fun for them, obviously. Outside of that, when Paul couldn't say, these are the five things that are going to happen, but he says this is what's going to happen. They're out of protection of being part of the body. Isn't this interesting? And so all of us enjoy this great beauty of being protected by the very presence of being in the body. Now, it's a supernatural thing, but it's interesting what Paul says about, about the discipline of the local church. But anyway, I want you to think about two or three things. And, and again, this is kind of a, this is kind of a, a big picture thing. You know, the, the New Testament says that that you and I as believers, whether it's living in the first century or, or whether it's living in, the, in 2024, that we are aliens in this world. Okay? And, and really the word aliens, when Paul uses it, Peter uses the same word to describe our, our place in this world. It, it, it's two words put together. It's translated alien. Um, Strangers is another way you could translate it. But it's the word house in the Greek language. It's the word house and the word outside. You're outside the house. And so that means that in this world, we're not at home, right? You see what I'm saying? We're not at home in this world, right? Is that true? That's right. Because we don't belong here, right? Where's our citizenship? In heaven, exactly right. So, so what I want you to think about just for three or four minutes, well, longer than that, about ten minutes, I want you to think about what in the world does that mean, that, that we as Christians in the world, with the blessings of salvation and being in the body, what does that mean? I'm going to give you three or four things to think about. Number one, is we are, and here's what the Bible says. It's amazing what the Bible says, but we are... We are, and this is not exactly in the text. I'm just pulling some from Paul's. I'll tell you what, go, go back to Ephesians. Hold your finger here and go to Ephesians 6. Let me show you this real quickly. Um, Ephesians chapter 6. Um, and this is interesting because obviously this is Paul's first correspondence by letter to the church at Ephesus. This is before Timothy became the pastor of the church at Ephesus. But obviously, if Paul had written this to the church at Ephesus, they still had a copy, right? Uh, as a matter of fact, um, scholars tell us, and that's probably true, this, I'm, I'm in Ephesians chapter 6. Um, folks, this stuff matters. I tell you stuff, and I know to you, it, if you think about it, putting it in context, how significant it is that these things are true. Church history says, now, there's not a Bible verse that says exactly what I'm fixing to say, but church history says this. 
when you read church history, first century church history, that this letter, the letter to the Ephesians, was a circular letter. So many of the letters that, like when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, that, was a, that letter was specifically to all those situations at Corinth. Many named people, situations, all that. The, the letter to Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, letter of Ephesians, they, they say, or scholars say, way beyond my pay grade, the best manuscripts do, does not have a place to the church at. It's empty. The better manuscripts, which of which there's thousands. So many people believe that, that this letter would probably went to all the churches that were in Asia. Good thing. Makes sense. But so the app is what I'm saying is this message is to everybody. Okay? It's just so interesting when you think of the context. And so what Paul's saying here, look how many how many Ephesians six. I just want you to see the sequence of this. And he's already said this to, to Timothy in in uh, uh, 1 Timothy 1. I, I'm in verse, uh, look at verse uh, 10. Ephesians 6, 10. So, who are we? Who, being aliens, then who are we to this world? Number one, I say we're saints in the world. Saints. We're, the Bible says 81 times, or it's translated. It, it's the same word, it's a root word for holiness or righteousness, okay? But translated saints, and, and, and by the way, I've said this probably 10,000 times. What's significant about the word saints or saint? What's, what is significant about saints? It's never used in the singular, ever. Ever. Do you find the word saint singular in the New Testament? It's always plural. Why? Well, because... We're meant to be together, right? It's always affiliating us with one another, the saints of God, okay? So the first thing I want you to think about is that we are saints in the world, okay? We're saints in the world. So we don't belong here, but we're saints that God has placed here, righteous ones, holy ones, little Jesuses, whatever you want to say, we're, we're saints in the world. And so we're not, we don't belong here, but we're at war with what is going on here. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 10, finally, Ephesians 6, 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Because we're, we're, we're aliens, visiting strangers, whatever term you want. We don't belong here. This world is our enemy, right? The book of John, the gospel of John, Jesus speaks really hard words about the world. And in John 17, he says, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. And he's very emphatic about that. So we, we don't belong here. We're not citizens here. We don't feel at home here. This is, we shouldn't be building an earthly kingdom here because this is not where we belong. And our heart belongs somewhere else, right? And, and so, so he says, finally be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of His might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Notice how many times He uses the word stand. That you may be able to stand. Folks, we are saints in the world and we need to take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that's really what Paul's begging Timothy to preach to the church, not only to do himself, to take stand in the gospel, stand on the word, stand, be faithful, whatever word you want to use, but the church is to stand as the saints of God that have been left in this world. Well, sometimes you, you kind of wish that when God saved you, He would have snatched you out and taken care of things. But He's left us here for a very specific reason, and that's to represent Him. So we are saints in the world. So He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to, able to stand against the schemes of the devil... For we do not struggle or wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. By the way, if you, and I do keep up with it, I'm interested in that stuff, if you've kept up with some of the, the disclosures, the UFO stuff and entities and claiming that we have uh, that this super intelligent, this guy that works, works for the CIA or the Department of Defense, something, has revealed that we have a physical spacecraft from another world, alien spacecraft in storage somewhere all over several places, that there's bodies of aliens that, or whatever you want to call them. And all that may be true, the Old Testament says it's true. And if you go back and read it, it doesn't surprise me. Because there's a whole spiritual world out there. And the evil angels, right? What are, the, what are they always wanting to do? Fallen angels, especially the ones that were from Genesis 6. God bound them. So they don't have a body. They're looking for a body. So they're always trying to inhabit something. So all that shouldn't surprise us. But they're... It's this massive warfare. So if you've been reading any of the headlines and looking at they have the, even Congress has met about this twice in hearings where these guys testify to all these entities and which is you know, it doesn't negate the Bible. We live in a spiritual world. There's a dimension that we can't see. It's a spiritual dimension, and some of those things may be true of that. I, it doesn't bother me. But I can tell you they're not little green. Uh, men from Mars, are they? If there if there's some physical body, no life in it that they have somewhere, well, I can tell you what used to inhabit that body was a demon, right? Let's move on. I chase that rabbit later. The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Look at all those four or five different ways that the evil is. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may able to to withstand. In the evil day. This is who you are. You are saints in the world. So we need to be standing in the evil day. We need to do all we can to stand firm. Stand therefore. And he goes on. having talks about the one way of looking at the Christian life. Is looking at the being the armor of God. So number one. We're saints in the world. Let me, can I show you something? I would never saw this before until I was cross-referencing this. I want you to go to Matthew's gospel. This is really interesting. Matthew, see, I believe in God's inspiration of the word. I believe every word in the Bible is God-breathed. That it's the words of God and He used men to pin it down. 
It's not that the men were inspired. It's the words of God. That's what's inspired. But Matthew chapter uh, 27. And I am going to run out of time. So I'll come back to this. Uh, We'll finish on time. But I want you to see. Go to Matthew 27. Now remember I mentioned that the word saints. So one of the things that makes this true is aliens, foreigners, strangers in the world. So how do we view that? How did Paul view the first century saints? Same thing we view. We are saints in the world, okay? The world's pagan. The world's under the schemes of the devil. He's the, he's the God of this world. But we are saints in the world. We're holy ones, righteous ones, set-apart ones. Whatever word you want to translate the word saints. We are saints in the world. And I find this interesting. So if you go to Matthew 27, so the word saint, saints, plural, appears, I think, 80, it's translated 81 times saints, okay, in the Bible. But the first time it appears in the New Testament, I think six or seven times it appears in Proverbs and Psalms, but in the New Testament it appears the first time translated is in Matthew 27. And... I want you to see to me how significant, and I've never seen this, that's why you keep reading the Bible. I'm at verse uh, 51. Matthew 27, verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. By the way, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. It wasn't removed. Now, that's physical, but also it's a spiritual. The veil has been torn. Spiritual. Now, I'm speaking spiritually. Hasn't been removed. It's been torn. But access through there into the presence of God comes through one man. You with me? It's not gone. So you just can't walk into heaven on your own. Right? You see where I'm going with that? The thought there? So literally, when Christ died, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, which is not possible for a man to do that. How thick it was, anyway, how high it was. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Verse 52. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. First time it's used was when Christ, basically when He rose from the dead, these bodies came, came out. Folks, this is, a, this is a great picture of what a saint, the, who the saints are. The saints are those that have been spiritually resurrected by the power of Jesus Christ, right? Am I right? Isn't that a great picture of what's, who, who the saints are in this world? We're the saints in the world. We're the ones that have been resurrected from spiritual death and are alive. And it's that message that we're responsible for carrying to a lost and dying world. Back to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let me read to you. Just We'll pick on this next Sunday, but... So here's, there's three or four things I say if you're looking at just ballpark and being aliens in this world. Number one, we're saints in the world. Matthew 27 is a great, great illustration of that. Number two, 
were soldiers in a war. You've already seen that, both what Paul's already said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, also what we just read in Ephesians chapter 6. You, Paul says things, and we'll come back to this but next week, but he says things in 1 Corinthians uh, about rest. He said, I battle, I battle. And I'm diligent to, to do what God wants me to do to fight the good fight. So we know all throughout the Bible that, that we're soldiers. Matter of fact, he tells Timothy that in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, a good soldier does not weave himself into the world. And, and then he says, this is why a good soldier of Christ doesn't weave himself in the world. So you, can, so you can serve the one who's enlisted you. The world's your enemy. So why in the world would I weave myself into the world when my loyalty as a saint to Christ would be Christ as my master? So I don't weave myself in the world. I weave myself around Jesus. So we're saints in the world. We're soldiers at war. We're servants of a master. And we'll learn about that next week. We're servants of a master. And we're stewards of a mystery. There's this... Folks, very few people, you know, we, I always talk about a biblical worldview. Very few people, even today, now this, the mystery that we do know and share you know, is the gospel, Christ, the Son of God. All, the lost world has no idea about that, but we do. And, and the Bible says we're, we're stewards of that mystery. And we have a massive responsibility to reveal that truth to a lost world. Let's take your Bibles and go to 2 Corinthians. And I'll finish with this. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And I'll read two verses and, and we'll close. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I want you to listen to God's Word here. 2 Corinthians 10. Uh, So we're saints in the world, we're soldiers at war, we're servants of a master, and we're stewards of a mystery. And we could, go, we could just keep on and on and adding things to who we are as aliens in this world. But one of the things that we're responsible for is this, uh, is this mystery, this truth. Look what... Uh, just let me pick up at chapter 10, verse 1. 2 Corinthians 10.1 I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. Of course, see, you know, if you read the letters of Paul, of which one there's a lost letter we don't have. It's called the hard letter. The stuff that he writes is tough. He's confrontational. And so that's what he's saying. But when I'm with you, I'm humble. When I'm away, I'm pretty tough. I beg of you that when I am present, that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. He's saying, I don't want to have to show up and defend myself to people that are lying about me when I show up. You should take care of that. But then we move on. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Right? The reality is we're in this world. We're, we are in the world living in the flesh, but we're not of the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. 
I mean, we live in reality. But there's a supernatural world that we're committed to. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. Did you see that? So our weapons, they're spiritual weapons and they have divine power. To destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So as believers, everything we think, everything we contemplate about in living in this world, we submit those thoughts to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So, so it's about, when we say we are saints in the world, you know, it's like at the church at Antioch is the first place believers were called Christians, which means little Christ. We are, every one of us, we're little Christ. And so we, everything, even though we live in this world, we're not of this world. So part of our responsibility is holding every thought captive to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen? It's, it's our responsibility. So we're saints in the world, soldiers at war, servants of the Master, and stewards of a divine mystery. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and our hearts are open unto the Lord. And just for a moment, in, in just a minute, we're going to stand and have a, a, a hymn of invitation. But our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and our hearts are open unto the Lord. And Folks, I, again, I, I don't want you... Our heads bowed, eyes closed, nobody looking around. I just want you to think about these things. I, I don't know where you are spiritually. But folks, there's nothing more essential for me and you than for us to be committed to the Lordship of Christ and the authority of His Word. And folks, that's, if we're committed to that, I'm just being honest with you, if we're committed to the Lordship of Christ and to the authority of His Word, it's going to show up at church. We're going to show up at church. We're going to make church the central hub of life. We love the church because Christ died and shed His blood for the church. So folks, if you're here today, I can't read your mind and heart, but the Spirit does. God knows. If you're here today and, you know, as a saint that, that's been left in this world to represent Christ, where are you? You know, I think about being a servant of the Master. Servants do what their Master says do. All, all these things, soldiers that are committed for the captain to tell them what to do and be ready at, to take a stand at any point at any time. Folks, all these are metaphors of giving us word pictures of what it means to follow Christ. And I, I just have to ask you, where are you? Where are you in the church? Where are you in the body of Christ? Well, today may be a, a day of commitment for you, a, a day of dedication. Today may be a day of rededication. It may be a, a day where you make a fresh commitment to serving the local church, to, to pursuing your spiritual gift. Today could be a day of significant decision for you. But there's another group of people that might be here. There may be one or two like that. You're here and 
Now listen to me. You're very religious. You're here. You're very religious. But on the inside of you, on the deep inside of you, you know the only thing that's there is you. Is you. Jesus isn't there. His presence is not there. The Bible says you're lost. You need a Savior. I'm begging you to consider the power of the cross and why Christ came. He can make you alive today by faith. Won't you trust Him today?